Did anyone hear what I just said? I said, there better be a sermon in here. <laughs> I brought it, but I didn't take it up in the pew with me. I want to correct something before I do anything else. I, I try to be very careful about, um, about these things. And last um, Lord's Day morning, um, as I was talking about Jesus as commander-in-chief, in an aside, referring to the courts and judgments, um, uh, of uh, the land, I'm particularly referring to the Supreme Court, which are sometimes air. Um, I uh, referenced Brown v. Board of Education as a Supreme Court decision that reinforced racial segregation in the South. In fact, what I meant was Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which was some, maybe some of you knew that and didn't say anything to me graciously, but Brown v. Board of Education was actually reversed that iniquitous uh, judgment. Probably not important to anyone, but I want to be correct. In a prayer uh, by John Calvin, preceding a lecture to his students in Geneva, Switzerland, approximately the year 1550, he said this, Grant Almighty God since our life is only for a moment, nay, is only vanity and smoke, that we may learn to cast all our cares upon Thee and so depend upon Thee as not to doubt Thee as our deliverer from all urgent perils. Grant us also to learn to neglect and despise our lives, especially for the testimony of Thy glory. And may we be prepared to depart as soon as thou callest us from this world. May the hope of eternal life be so fixed on our hearts that we may willingly leave this world and aspire with all our minds towards that blessed eternity which thou hast testified to be laid up for us in heaven through the gospel and which thine only begotten Son has procured for us through his blood. Amen. A, a solemn prayer that probably meant a good deal to uh, many of his students since they knew well that upon leaving the safety of, Pro uh, safety of Protestant Geneva um, and entering into missionary service in Western Europe, for which they were almost all of them sworn, they were very likely to uh, face serious persecution in the face of the Roman Catholic Church. Many students of Calvin died in the flames. In fact, more than a few who had hardly crossed the border into Calvin's native France were discovered, seized, and publicly burned at the stake. So Calvin gave this particular prayer immediately before his lecture on the third chapter of the book of Daniel, to which we will also turn um, this last Sunday in Advent. Um, in Daniel chapter 3, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, jealous uh, for uh, security of his rule, erected this stunning 90-foot golden image on the plain of Dura. And with much musical pomp and ritual, he required all of his all of his high officials to appear and bow down before this image in worship. We'll pick up the text in verse 8. Daniel 
chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, reading in God's word through verse 27. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your God or gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us <clears throat> from the fiery burning furnace and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance 
Now the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And, um, and the satraps and the precepts and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hairs of their head were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire came upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, O blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. And they set, uh, set aside the king's command. And they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar leaps from the throne in astonishment at, at what he's seen. He, he declares to his counselors, did we not cast into, bound into the fire uh, three men? And they answered, true, O king. And, and he, he says, but I saw four men walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth is like one of the sons of the gods. Now, what did he see? He saw three men thrown to their death in the furnace, but they're unharmed, and they're joined by a fourth person. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees four people walking in his fiery inferno. And who is the fourth person? Brothers and sisters, what they saw was almost certainly the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who came down to do what God always does for his people, to stand with them in the furnace of affliction. Praise God. So here before us then is uh, another Christophany, another appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and we know this is the pre-incarnate Jesus chiefly because of the name that he's given in the text. Throughout the scriptures, uh, Jesus is revealed to us through his names. And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar sees a mysterious figure in this fiery furnace standing together with the Israelites and he names them as one of the sons of the gods. Uh, Habe, uh, it, it's a, and he uses the word Elohim. Um, and this is how it reads in the New American Standard, the New English Standard Version, which probably many of you are using, and which is a very literal translation of the Hebrew text. Translators, however, for centuries have argued um, how to read those words. Uh, if you look in the King James Version, or the New King James Version, you'll see it translated in the singular as the Son of God, which actually helps to identify him. 
And that is also a perfectly legitimate translation since the Hebrew name which God gave us, Elohim, is while technically plural and as such Trinitarian, it is always translated by Christians and Jews in the singular since we're monotheists and we understand that there is really only one God. Um, actually, that this heathen king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a confirmed polytheist who worshipped many gods, had no problem with that, had no idea what he had seen or what he was talking about. He simply was speaking from the viewpoint of one steeped in, uh, in his own Babylonian superstition. Uh, a little later, you'll notice, he refers to him as an angel sent by God, delivered, delivered his servants. So it seemed obvious to Nebuchadnezzar, this figure in the furnace, who wasn't among the three when he was thrown into the furnace, and didn't appear with the three when he came out of the furnace, it seemed obvious to him that this must be some sort of divine figure uh, who fit in his imagination as one of the sons of the gods. But we know from Scripture um, that there is but one God who is uh, one and, and, and one Son of God, the eternally begotten third person of the Trinity, uh, the divine Jesus, who is named throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and knew as the Son of God. Um, that was a title that Jesus always used of himself. When you read about the Son of God, that's referring to Jesus. And so that's exactly what the king saw in the furnace. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, who we know, um, uh, and another closely, by another closely related name, uh, that helps lock this idea together. Uh, th that is the name given him by the prophet Isaiah and repeated by the angelic messenger who announced his coming to uh, Mary. Uh, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you should call his name Emmanuel, which means, literally, God with us. Uh, Jesus came to uh, fulfill the, uh, the new covenant to become God with us. Jesus came to be with us. And that's the first thing that God the Holy Spirit must surely desire for us to learn from this remarkable uh, Christophany in Joshua 3. We've been looking at a number of different appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament throughout the last few months, seeing how they really wonderfully reveal things to us about uh, Jesus Christ. We saw Jesus appear to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. And last Lord's Day morning, we saw Jesus revealed as uh, the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, but here, uh, in, um, in Joshua 3, he reveals himself to us uh, in the fiery furnace of oppression. Because Jesus wants to impress upon us... Um, this powerful assurance of his presence, especially when we need him the most and expect him uh, the least. For who would have expected Jesus to appear uh, in the fire of an executioner for, with three faithful men in Babylon so long ago, back in the Old Testament age? Here's what happened. Uh, the book of Daniel is an historic account. And the record of these three men being cast into the burning uh, furnace is not a fanciful story. It's a true account of a true happening in time and history. Nebuchadnezzar 
who was known in, in history and in secular history even as a, a great monarch of the Babylonian or Chaldean dynasty, was very powerful, very militarily successful, ruling between 605 and approximately 652 B.C. In Daniel 2 and 3, you may recall that the Bible re- records a vision given by God to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, which Daniel interpreted for him. And that dream, if you remember, describes Nebuchadnezzar as a great king, but clearly not the greatest king, and one whose kingdom would someday be destroyed. So Nebuchadnezzar knew all this. And perhaps with this in mind, that paranoid monarch prepares this great idol uh, to himself as a loyalty test, uh, which he requires of all his high officials there to assemble together and bow before the idol, uh, demonstrating their unity, demonstrating their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> Excuse me. And among them are these three Hebrew men, friends of Daniel, who, uh, because of their administrative skills, have been um, ed, uh, have been promoted. And, and, but they are called out. They are identified by their enemies because they were different. God's people, even you and I, will always be identified as Christians if we love God, if we walk with any transparency before the world at all. And as such, we may find ourselves at odds with others, with worldly folk around us. Often not, but we might. In China today, there are cameras mounted everywhere, including uh, even outside of the churches, in many cases even inside the, uh, uh, the government, state churches, because the government wants to know who these different Christians are, who don't quite mix very well all the time. Uh, these three men in our text are servants of the living God, and although they performed their secular jobs faithfully, for all we know, and were, in fact, promoted, uh, they stood out, uh, particularly here because of their unwillingness to bow before idols. Uh, they knew the first commandment, as well as you and I, and the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And they knew the second commandment. Um, you shall not bow down before uh, or worship them, uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so they were compelled to defy the king's command, who becomes so enraged by this, that he orders his furnaces, uh, which have been built together with the idol, to intimidate his officials. He he orders uh, it heated seven times its normal heat as a measure of his anger, and to demonstrate that he regards these men's refusal uh, uh, to be seven times worse than than, than others. Uh, so the courage of these men is what's often uh, commented upon in this text, and sometimes in sort of a dry and empty way. Well, they were very courageous and so forth. Um, but I want to, uh, to fix your attention on Jesus and his blessed presence uh, with each of these men in that moment of crisis. But we always need to avoid moralism when we read Old Testament passages. And we always need to look for Christ, which in this case is handed to us in this gorgeous silver platter. 
And there are three men bound, cast into the inferno of flames. It's so intense that even the soldiers who were tasked with throwing them into the furnace perish from the heat. But there they are in the furnace. Not only do they survive it, but they're joined by the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what an experience. What a picture. What a blessed thing. To have the blessing of Jesus Christ standing right there with them in the midst of their horrible ordeal. But brethren, there's nothing so very extraordinary about that. There, in fact, have been numerous published accounts of, of Jesus' presence with his people in all sorts of dramatic crises. Because simply that's what God has always promised. The presence of God with his elect people is a marker of the true and living God. It's a marker of God's people that sets him apart from other, sets us apart from other religious people, religious people in the world. What was it? Just, just think about this. What was it that so terrified uh, the, the nations when, Je when the Israelites came out of, out of Egypt? They were terrified. And the reason they were terrified was because these were people whose God went with them. You remember? Cloud, fire, wherever they went, they had their tabernacle. God went with them. That was unheard of. That caused great fear. Uh, because it was so, so unique. And it is unique. And that's God's blessing. Um, when Moses pleads with God not to send him back to Egypt uh, and, and to, to face off with, with the king Pharaoh and his demoralized countrymen, God says to him, but I will be with you. God promises Israel through the prophet Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, and we read this earlier, I will be with you. And what is the great comfort after all the 33rd Psalm, which has been uh, close to the lips of Christians in trouble for, for over uh, 3,000 3, years of, of text. Uh, yea, uh, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and staff, they comfort me. What comfort did our Lord give his disciples and us? after he had forged the new covenant in his death and resurrection. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is God's blessing. Um, recall the godly uh, Stephen, who, um, who, who, who bore such a forthright testimony uh, to the Lord Jesus when... Um, when he was uh, standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 and 8. The Sanhedrin was so offended by, by the testimony of that holy man that they stoned him to death. They were outraged at the things he was saying. And, 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 and Stephen didn't mince words. Um, so, um, but we're told that Stephen, in the midst of this stoning, looks up into heaven and he saw Jesus. Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father, looking attentively down upon Stephen, engaged in his plight, and prepared to receive him to himself. And for Stephen, that was all he needed. It was as good as Jesus being right next to him. And um, in the moment of his greatest hour of need. And that has been the testimony of God's people throughout the ages. As the, as, the, as the psalmist put it, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. What was Pentecost? 
Pentecost was the fulfillment of what God had been working on through all those ages. It was the fulfillment, uh, the partial fulfillment, the very close to near fulfillment of, of the Emmanuel principle that will come to perfect fulfillment at the end of the age. Then, God the Holy Spirit came down, the Spirit of Christ, to be with him. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said to his disciples, it's all right, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Especially in the hour of our greatest need, in the fiery furnaces of affliction, whatever they might be. Not simply looking dispassionately on from on far, not distant or high or far away, That's the whole point of the text. Jesus was right there in the middle of the fire. One other way, or more or less, it's always been the case, more or less dramatically, has been the experience of God's people um, through the ages. Well, this is certainly um, a most remarkable text and an unexpected appearance of the Lord Jesus. But it teaches us something else. It It certainly is a blessed reminder and assurance of his presence, but it's also, for a second thing, a timely reminder to take care with our lives. Um, um, There was, as Calvin reminds us, no third way open to these these men. When the choice was was granted them either to submit in death, uh, submit, submit to death, or to apostatize, to the true and living God, uh, to bow down to the idol, they did the right thing. And we mustn't suppose that it was so very clear and easy for them to make that a fateful decision as it may appear on the surface of the text. Uh, and and they, they may well have known very well what was coming uh, to them for who knows how long before the actual moment arrived. And they had to decide. Uh, nor should we suppose that there cannot be considerable subtlety in the temptation to betray our faith and our confession of God. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this text, warns us uh, that blasphemy and idolatry can be quietly disguised in the trappings of, of, of religions of denial. Whenever Christ God is not the clear focus of our worship and ritual, for example, we should beware. Whenever much is made of a person, a powerful employee who holds uh, our financial being in his hands, or a political figure, a Nebuchadnezzar, or some admired pastor or religious leader, there's always danger of the, of the authority of Christ being effectively diminished. That's dangerous. Brethren, it's been my studied opinion that the more extravagant the worship service, the more flashy and showy and lavish and excessively liturgical or excessively practiced and prepared. I remember going to a service once and the person came out to sing and spotlights came down and it was extraordinary. It was just like, oh, listen to him. Well, we're not there to listen to them. We're here to see Jesus, you see. And, and um, the, the less simplistic and God-centered, as opposed to man-centered, the worship is, the faster, uh, the greater the likelihood of the drift into idolatry. The worship service prepared for all these nobles of Nebuchadnezzar 
This was a worship service in some sense. It was not inspired by God the Holy Spirit as word, but by the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, for his own aggrandizement, for his own pleasure, and for his own purposes. And it was, believe me, carefully orchestrated with all of this, this fabulous, uh, you know, whatever it was, monument, um, uh, the stunning display of the idolatrous statue, all of the pomp and all of the music, all these instruments. And, and uh, it was the best multimedia production of the day. Nothing like it anywhere else. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, had had some interaction, inter- interaction with, with the God of Daniel. Um, but his purposes in the plain of Dura was not ultimately religious. It was personal, it was political, it was nationalistic. And all that Nebuchadnezzar demanded was just a small act, external act of deference to himself and to the state, to him and his authority. Just a, a, little, a little bow of the head, a little show of worship. That's all the world has ever asked of us. Uh, that's the Roman, uh, the Roman second century uh, Roman Empire. That's all they required of the, of the earthly Christ, early Christians. And that's all the devil required of Jesus at that time of temptation, remember? Fall down and worship me. You know, just a little, little bow, Jesus. But that's not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to the Lord and it's not acceptable for us, not ever. Now, certainly when we read this text, we must purpose in our hearts not to put anything before Christ in our lives or in any way deny him or in any way disassociate ourselves from him. And from his people, especially in the hour of discouragement, especially in the hour of chronic pain, in the hour of physical deterioration or apparent mortal illness, we, we may be cruelly tempted, tempted to, to think or, or, or say ill of God, to deny Christ or to be a poor witness to his grace and mercy in our lives. And so we need to uphold one another and, and pray for one another for the weakness of the flesh in this fallen world with prayer and never be censorious or judgmental or condemning. That's not Christ-like either, is it? The Lord is gracious and uh, we should always be gracious to one another. So in the end, it was, um, what was it that enabled these three men to defy the king, to defy all odds and stand firm in the face of a terrifying prospect. Well, in the end, it all came down to loving trust and godly fear and holy boldness. Uh, For these men, at the moment of decision, they found their love, they found uh, their their trust in Christ and his promises uh, to be sufficient. And their righteous fear of God was stronger uh, than Nebuchadnezzar and his threats upon uh, their lives. Do you believe that, um, and that there is a real and living God? Do you believe that, do you have faith in a historical Jesus? Do you believe in sin? Do you believe in the atonement and the historic death of, on the cross in 3, 3 AD Jerusalem? Do you believe there is such thing as an eternal heaven awaiting for God's faithful servants? Do you believe that Jesus saves and will, and will be with you in the fires of persecution and afflictions and difficulties and that he will be sufficient 
Do you believe in the unseen spiritual world and reality? Do you believe in the Bible and the written promises of God and all the testimony of the church and all the testimony of the saints throughout the ages? And do you believe that's enough? Uh, is it important enough that you are able to put Christ first before men? Have you proved that to yourself and to God by doing little things day by day? Putting God in his holy word before your own preferences, before your own comforts, and even before your own opinions. If you fail in little acts of obedience and sacrifice to God, don't expect to stand before the hard things. Ask God to give you faith and trust in him with, with little acts of faith, little acts of obedience every day. I want to please you, Lord. These three men said to Nebuchadnezzar, our God, who we serve, is able to, uh, to deliver us from uh, the fiery furnace. Uh, if God is pleased to give those men such a remarkable measure of faith in that day, blessing them with, with his presence in the midst of the fire, don't doubt that he will do as much for you today. His grace will always be sufficient for his beloved blood-bought children. Now, those men also feared God. They feared God more than they feared Nebuchadnezzar. They had faith, but they also had a certain measure of fear. They said to the king, our king is well able to save us, but if not, that is, if God doesn't choose to save us from this fire, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image before you. Why? They believed that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. But they also feared him. Uh, for this generation uh, of the church, at least for the church uh, in the West, the idea of the fear of God is neither appreciated nor understood. Uh, loving God, fearing God, seems very much at odds to us. Loving, fearing. But that is, that is not the way of the Bible at all. The Bible never bifurcates or separates those two. Uh, those who love the Lord and return the love of God will have always feared him, have always respected him, will not cross him or deal unfaithfully with him. But can't you agree that it would have been a terrible thing to risk the disappointment and the scorn and even the earthly consequences of those angry men, that's true, but it would be even more terrible and more treacherous to expose ourselves to the sorrow and disappointment and anger of our God who holds our eternal souls in his hands and, and has treated us so graciously and borne with us so patiently and even sent his only son Jesus to die for us. What treachery is that? Surely we can do better than that. By the grace of God, we will do better than that. We will. For he will, as we sing, hold us fast. But more than that, I believe that the assurances and promises of the loving presence of God both requires and gives us, as it did those men of Daniel's day, a third thing. Faith, fear. And also, a third thing, a certain holy boldness. A certain, a certain recklessness. Uh, in, in serving and loving God. I think this is what Calvin is praying for his students in this prayer I opened with, that they might not, that they might not hold their lives so dear, or earthly promises and pleasures so precious. 
compared with uh, the Savior in the perfect presence of eternity. That they wouldn't just be hunkering down and trembling in their, in their student dorms instead of going out and serving him. So the question comes to us, are we willing to, to risk, well, what are we willing to risk in the light of, of, of the security that we have in Christ? If God holds us fast, we can be bold. An unconverted uh, man, a worldly woman, might for the sake of wealth or honor or the good opinion of others, risk a good deal. He's an entrepreneur, you know, we love that. Entrepreneur, yes, a risk taker. We like risk takers. But you and I can can take even greater risks. uh, Serving selflessly when there's no possibility of earthly rewards and very little applause uh, because of our security in Christ. Because we are in Christ and he is in us and with us. And because our love for Christ the Savior uh, we, we are, and our commitment to his cause. Uh, what earthly reward, what possible earthly reward could Rich Gardner with firm foundations for Christ possibly expect to get for his bold, risky ministry in dangerous Nigeria? What reward will you get uh, ministering to someone who's sick, who's in need, who has nothing but troubles to repay you with. But with Emmanuel, with God with us, we can do all things who strengthens us, even risky things for his sake, before the approving eyes of God, because of his presence is with us through the Holy Spirit. That is our strength. That is God's gift for his people. That is the unique possession and power and glory of Christ church. Amen. Lord our God, we read this passage and really marvel at uh, at what you did. And yet when we look at it clearly, we see that what they have is what we have. And so we thank you for it and pray that we might be faithful and and bold and and rest joyfully in you, uh, knowing that you will indeed be with us to the end of the age. We pray your blessing and thanking you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.